Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Matthew. A couple of announcements as um, folks get back in from the Sunday School area. The ladies' ministry is starting um, their they're continuing their Sunday evening Bible study, but tonight they'll start a new study in the book of Philippians. And so, ladies, if you're interested in that, the ladies' Bible study is at 6 o'clock. It's on Zoom, and um, you're all welcome to, to uh, get involved in that. There's an email that's sent out every week that you should get, and if you don't get it, uh, talk to Pastor Michael, and he'll, he'll make sure that you get added to the list. Um, men's is at 7.30 tonight, and they're going to be going through um, a book that Michael's holding up back there. What is it, brother? The Pursuit of God. Okay, The Pursuit of God. And so, um, man, it's at 7.30. Again, it's also on Zoom, so if you want to be a part of that, uh, see him and or talk to anybody that will get that email, and we'll get you hooked up for tonight. Um, I just wanted to say a, a word, too. This is November 1st, it's crazy, right? The year is almost over. We're two days away from an election that uh, has been very emotional and very exciting at many different uh, levels. I just wanted to remind you of two things for Tuesday. Um, I, I, I try not to be political. I um, avoid it as much as I possibly can. And I... Um, I do that on purpose because I think this is about the gospel, and I want to make sure that I'm not uh, pushing people away that need to hear the gospel. But I would say two things for for Tuesday. Just remember humility, uh, number one. Remember humility in the process, and remember trust in the process. Uh, Whoever wins or loses, we know that our God is sovereign. He's in control. And we've got to remember trust when it comes to an election like this, and humility, um, because our person might win, and we might be boastful and proud, and that's not helpful for anybody either, right? Right? (laughs) Anybody agree with me on that? Okay, good. I'm glad I'm not on my own on that one, but we want to remember those two things, uh, humility and um, because people will be hurting on Tuesday. People will be hurting. There will be pain, real serious emotional challenges, and um, we need to be there. I mean, those are the moments where we can be an an outreach, right? And if we're, you know, boastful, then we're not going to be much of an outreach. So I just say, remember humility. On Tuesday, remember trust. God is sovereign. He's in control. Whoever, honestly, whoever gets into office is is not going to be our Savior anyway, right? Um, We want to keep our attention on the Lord Jesus Christ during during these times as as well as any other time. And and so... um, just a few encouraging words from your pastor about the election on Tuesday. Matthew chapter number one. This morning we're going to do a little bit of a, a journey uh, through the scriptures to lay, to lay some more foundation for the book of Ruth. And um, we looked at last week, we did a little bit of a narrative reading of the book and looked at some foundational things. This week we're going to look at some foundational things as well, but also we're going to dive into the first chapter and begin the process of unfolding the, the book itself. The book of Ruth is a very, very unique book in the Bible. It's noted as being one of the most dramatic uh, narratives in the scriptures, one of the most beautiful love stories to be presented in the scripture. And we see in the book of Ruth, redemption is really the main theme 
the, um, the Hebrew word is used, I believe, 21 times in the book itself, but the theme really runs throughout the entire book of, of redemption. Um, there's lots of redemption going on in all of the different chapters, but ultimately it points to this bigger redemption. The book of Ruth point, points to a redemption that is, um, that is an eternal redemption, doesn't just point, we, we see this story kind of affixed in the middle of the Old Testament, and we think of the narrative of Ruth, and we get it, we understand it, but really Ruth is meant to point us to this greater narrative, this, this, this overarching narrative that is an eternal narrative. And Ruth is, it's interesting because when you look at, and we'll look at the first part of Ruth this morning, um, the first phrase is in the time of the judges. So the, the writing of the book of Ruth is, comes from the season of the book before it, which is Judges. And Judges is a book, if you, if you can think of it this way, it's, it's as if there's this, there's this story going on, this narrative in the book of Judges. Um, God's people uh, were, they did what was rebellious towards God, they resisted God, they did what was right in their own eyes. That's kind of the theme of Judges, the, the people did what was right in their own eyes, Right? And, and God would send judgment, he would send captivity, he would send poverty, he would send something to them to, to wake them up to their sinfulness, right? And then he would send a judge who would then bring about restoration or redemption. So this is kind of a cycle in the book of Judges that's taking place. Ruth is the, Ruth, it's almost, it's almost as if God reached down and just plucked a story out of the book of Judges and wrote a whole nother story. That's what Ruth is. Ruth is a story that comes from the book of Judges that the Lord decided to put great emphasis on, and not just the narrative of Ruth, but really the, he puts a, a, a high uh, level of focus on this family because of what they're ultimately going to be be a part of. And so we see all of that taking place, and we're going to unfold that. But I wanted to, to, to take you through a few things so that we can hear some truths this morning that I think Ruth presents to us um, as a theme. In Matthew chapter number one, we have the genealogies of Christ. Uh, Matthew is a very Jewish book. It points to the coming kingdom of the Lord. It's, uh, that's its emphasis. We see lots of uh, kingdom terminology to express to us that, that the Lord's kingdom is going to come. Christ is going to rule and reign. And we are anticipating, we are looking forward to that time where Christ will rule and reign um, physically. We know that in the heart and lives of Christians, he rules and reigns spiritually today. And we are indwelt by his spirit, and therefore he is the Lord. So the idea of Lord is he is the Lord of our lives. And that's why Christians are unique from this world, because they are indwelt by the spirit of God. It makes them unique. It gives them different passions, different purposes, different focuses. So that's a part of who we are as Christians but we're looking forward to the day when there'll be a new heaven and a new earth and Christ is going to reign in a very physical way in all of the earth. And we'll be under his physical rule and reign. So I wanted to just look at some of the genealogies to kind of unpack a little bit for you where this all um, points to, if you will. 
The Bible says in verse 2 of Matthew 1, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez. And just mark that name right there, okay, because that name is going to be important to the genealogies of Ruth. This is going to match up with the genealogies at the end of Ruth. So Perez and Zerah by Tamar, mark or underline that word Tamar, that name Tamar there, because that's also going to be a very important name in the story of Ruth. The Bible says in Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz. Okay, so Mark, Salmon, Mark, Boaz, if you write in your Bibles or take notes, these are important names in the book of Ruth. Okay, then he says, by Rahab, Mark Rahab, right? She's going to be really significant as well in the story of Ruth. And Boaz, the father of Obed, um, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And we'll stop there because, and obviously, we, we could go on, and ultimately, we get down to um, Mary, Joseph, Jesus. Mary and Joseph had Jesus. And so, all of these are meant for us to see this, this trend in Scripture that points us to Christ. It points us to Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate redeemer. Boaz is a temporary redeemer that is a picture of Christ. Christ is the, is the true redeemer. He is the one who redeems us from our sins and sets us free. So now let's go back to the book of Ruth. Let's go back to the book of Ruth in the very last chapter of Ruth. So at the end of Ruth, um, Ruth has Obed, and we saw Obed, and we saw Ruth in the genealogies, and then we're going to have this genealogy, this shortened genealogy to what we read in Matthew, but it's the same genealogy. It's just shortened because it doesn't move past David, in which David is that David is that mediation point, if you will, in Scripture, where you have Abraham, who was a representation of Christ. You have David, who is a representation of Christ, and then you have Christ. So you have all of these, you have these representations that are pointing us or pushing us to, to Christ. And, and everything in the Christian life is meant to push us there. That's where we're going. The Bible says at the end of the book of Ruth, now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amminadab, Amminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, Jesse fathered David, and then we go on and we go on and we go on to find out where um, we find Christ at the end of this genealogy. Now go, go back with me to the beginning of Ruth. We're going to look at a few other characters really quick here. We're going to unfold a few truths in the first um, portion of Ruth, and then, uh, and then we'll be done for the morning. The Bible says in the days of the judges, when the days of the judges ruled, so again, we go back genealogy, we go back in, in time a little bit to the book of Judges, 
And in the book of Judges, there, there are rulers, they're rising and they're falling. The likelihood of Ruth's story is that it takes place at the beginning of the reign of the Judges. And we know that because when, when, um, when the Jewish people went into Canaan land, the first place that they went to when they were spying out the land, they went in to spy out the land. Do you remember that? And there was a woman that they met in that when they went to spy out the land. Do you remember her name? Okay, her name was Rahab, and Rahab was known uh, amongst the people of, of um, Jericho as a what? She was known as a prostitute, and she was a harlot. So they went in, the spies went in, you guys, you know the story. They went to her house, she, um, she hides them, she conceals them, and then she sends them on their way, allows them to spy out the land. Then when the people of God come back and they march around the walls and the walls fall down. Because of her faithfulness, her house stands. She's in Hebrews 11, which is amazing. Her house stands amongst all of the other walls that have fallen. Her house is the only one that's standing still. And the Bible says that anyone that was in her house was protected. So it wasn't just she who was protected by the faith that she exhibited, but it was all of those who were in her household were protected by the faith that she exhibited, right? And her life was completely changed. And the interesting thing is, is according to our genealogies, um, she, she was Rahab the harlot, then married Salmon, who puts her, puts her into the line of Christ, who puts her into the line of Ruth and Boaz and Obed. So you, you, have this, you have this harlot who has faith in Christ, who puts faith in the promises of God and the commands of God, and, and, and God takes her and he transforms her life. We don't only stop there. It doesn't stop there. But if you go back even further into the book of Genesis in chapter number 38, in Genesis 38, there's... Um, uh, there's a, a situation with Judah. One of Judah's sons was married to Tamar, and the son dies, and the, the natural process would be that the next son in line would take Tamar to be his wife, and they would have children. We see that same references here in the book of Ruth. It's, it's uh, the law in the Old Testament, and uh, a law in the Old Testament, when a, when a husband would die, a, a, a next of kin or a brother would take that. It was called the Leveret Law, I believe. And, and, they, and they would have uh, children so that, they, so, that they're, um, so that they would be an, an, an heir, someone to carry on the name of that individual. So in that time, Judah, Judah uh, doesn't give Tamar his next son, uh, the next son does not take Tamar to be his, uh, as his be husband and wife, and so Tamar puts on a um, puts on a prostitute um, show, ends up having relationships with her father, her her uh, father in law, and um, and out comes this this scenario, this genealogy, and these three women find themselves. It's it's interesting. You have Tamar. You have um, let me think for a minute here. Rahab, Tamar, um, and the third one. No, let me think here for a minute. Bathsheba, thank you. Yes, thank you very much, Robert. You have those three women in the line of Christ, and in each one of those situations, the scenario is very bad. 
The situation is very, is very, very bad. So we come to Ruth. Again, we have the Lord has plucked this story out of, or this family, if you will, out of this season of, of men doing what's right in their own eyes. They rise and they fall. They rise and they fall. It's just a cycle. And, and it's not any different than the cycles that we live in today, is it? And when we live in that same cycle, we live in this world where, where righteousness, where people, they have seasons of good, and then they have seasons, it seems like we're on this roller coaster ride. What God does is he plucks out a people, what we call his people, and he uses those people for a reason. He redeems those people, and that's what the story of Ruth is. The story of Ruth is God plucking a family out of the uh, judges to redeem this family, to re- really... Uh, there's more to it than that, and we'll unfold that here in a moment. But there's a redemption that takes place of this family, and God uses them to point to and accomplish his, his greater purposes. So as we look at the book of Ruth in the first chapter this morning, that kind of gives you a framework of what we're pressing to. What is the purpose of Ruth in the Bible? It is to press to, it is to connect. It's almost like I, you can picture it like a chain uh, there's a link in the chain that's missing that goes from the entering uh, the time of Joshua and entering the promised land to this evil state where God's children are just rebelling all that they can to this coming king of David to the ultimate king of Christ. There's this link missing and what the Lord does is, is Boaz and Ruth's story fits that link to bring it together. There's so much detail in the book of Ruth because this is a, if you were, if you were to imagine, again, we're, we're in an election season, so it somewhat makes sense to us, right? If there's any question about the genealogy of a president, somebody that's running for president, maybe they don't know if he was born in our country, right? And they question whether that was true. And so they might say, well, he's not really fit to be our president because he wasn't born in our country. The reason why you have such detailed genealogy in the book of Ruth is because it's making a strong statement that Boaz is a sufficient redeemer and that David, therefore, is a sufficient king. He is a rightful king, and therefore Jesus Christ is the rightful Messiah. You have to have the details of Ruth to get to that point. And you'll see, again, as you read through the book of Ruth, you'll see this extraordinary detail about every, you see names mentioned over and over again, and not just names, but, but how this name relates to this name and how they all fit together. The reason why you have Elimelech mentioned in the first chapter, in the first few verses, Elimelech, Elimelech really meant nothing at all to the story of Ruth. I mean, literally, his name is mentioned. But the importance of his name is that he connects he makes the connection through which we have the genealogies that fit us. We have that patriarchal genealogies coming through that, through that to get us to where we need to be. So that's why you're going to see a lot of detail in the book of Ruth is that he's, he's pressing home that, that Boaz is a proper redeemer, that Jesus and David are also proper redeemers. Let's read if you'll read along with me, I want to read the first um, several verses and, and give you just a few th- uh, truths, I think, to, that come from this. The Bible says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. 
So we start, we start right off with the fact that there's a famine in the land of Bethlehem of Judah. And that famine, if you, if you uh, again, if you study the book of Judges, which is where this comes from, that famine is likely a product of God's judgment on the Jewish people. It's very likely that God sent a famine because the children of Israel did what was right in their own eyes. God sends a famine to them, right? And, and man's natural response, what you'll see in the first chapter is really you'll see this God's providence working in spite of man's actions. You really see that throughout the first chapters. It's like man does this, but it doesn't distort the fact that God is still accomplishing his purposes. Right? It's good to know, isn't it? Because we make a lot of bad decisions. We make a lot of misdirections in life. And it's good to know that when we make those misdirections, that God's sovereign plan is not distorted. It's not warped. God is not up in heaven wringing his hands thinking, oh my goodness, what am I going to do now? They just messed everything up for me. Right? That's not the God that we serve. God is in absolute control. And when we mess things up and we do mess them up and we do go in the wrong directions in the wrong ways, that it doesn't mess up God's plan. That is, the, that is really the theme of the first chapter. It is man doing things that they shouldn't be doing and God still bringing David out of it, right? And then bringing Jesus out of it. I'm thankful for that. So in the days of the judges, there was a famine in the land. Again, it was likely a result of the fact that they were doing what was right in their own eyes. And then when there's a famine in the land, what does man naturally do when there's problems? What does a man naturally do when there's problems? Okay, he does exactly what Elimelech does. He runs, right? Let's find a place where there's not that many problems, Let's find, the, let's find the security zone. Let's find the safety net. Let's find the, the blanket. And so, so Elimelech does what, what naturally what men would do in a situation like this. They've, there's famine. There's no food. Um, things are not good right now. As a result of God's judgment, get that. Don't miss that. It's so true that we don't want God to judge us for the actions that we commit. We want to do what, what's right in our own eyes, and then when God sends judgment, we want to go to Moab, right? Where there's no judgment. No, you deal with what you did wrong. You get on your knees before God, and you repent of your sins, and you tell him that you've done wrong, and you plead with him for mercy that he can, he can take and he can bless Bethlehem, can't he? He doesn't need you to go to Moab to find his blessing. He needs you to repent to find his blessing. But we, like Elimelech, we want to run when things get difficult. When there's a famine in the land that's a result of God's judgment on the actions that we have done, we want to run from it, and that accomplishes zero. Matter of fact, there's a lot of negatives that are accomplished by Elimelech's actions. And we're going to see those here in a moment. Watch what happens. Let me say this. So let me read on, and then I'm going to make a few statements the man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Okay, and we talked last week about Moabites, right? Now, I want you to get this picture. Um, it's real important to connect Genesis, which we've already done, to Ruth. There's a lot of pictures in Genesis that are, that are fulfilled or, or that are seen also in Ruth. One of those is Moab. Moab is a very, Moab comes from Lot's, um, sinful relationship with his daughters, the Moabites, Sodom and Gomorrah was in the same place. And 
when I think back to Genesis uh, chapter number 11 and 12, the Bible says that Lot came, that Lot and Abraham were having some conflict. Maybe it's not, a, I think, it, I believe it is. They're having conflict. Abraham and Lot are having conflict because both of them are very successful and very wealthy, right? And Abraham says to Lot, look, look and choose where you want to go and wherever you want to go, I'll, I'll choose the other, right? You guys remember the story of Lot? He looks down upon Moab during that time, Sodom and Gomorrah. He looks down upon it and he sees all of the, he sees all of the abundance, doesn't he? He sees how great things are in Sodom. He sees that they're flourishing, that things are going really, really well. And he says, that, that's what I want. That's what I need. And so Lot goes to Moab or to Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's where he sets himself to be. Elimelech does the exact same thing. God sends a, a famine in the land of Bethlehem. Elimelech looks and he sees where things are. And things are good. It's flourishing. Things are going great there. You notice that you notice that there's no Elimelech getting on his knees before God and asking God for direction or wisdom. You notice that Elimelech's decision is totally based upon Elimelech's comfort, Elimelech's security. It's based totally on that which is fleshly. And, and really, if you read it in Lot the same way, you see no... If Lot was wise, he knew that, uh, that Abraham was a, was a much wiser man than he was. If Lot was wise, he would have said, Abraham, you choose, and I'll take the leftovers. We get into this place in our spiritual life, where, or in our, in our life uh, uh, period, where we look at life from a very fleshly a prospect, very fleshly process. What's better? What's more comfortable? What's easier? That's exactly what Elimelech does. So he, he looks at Moab and he sees what? He sees the, it's a well-watered plain, exactly what Lot said. But here's what he says that's interesting. He says that he went to sojourn there. You guys know what it means to sojourn? It's like if you're going down the road and you need gas and you notice on the, on the side of the road there, there's a gas station. You would stop and get gas, right? You would sojourn there. You weren't going there to stay. You were going there for a, for a very short season because then you were going to get back on the road and go somewhere else. The Bible says that Elimelech's plan was he was going to go and get some gas, he was going to go and stay temporarily in this place, and then he was going to move on. Listen to me. When you go to a place that God is not, that you go to a wicked place because you find comfort and rest in it, you'll not, you'll, you will not stay there temporarily. It will capture you. It's like the, 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 story, of the, um, the story of Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress. And that place that he went that was just full of wickedness. It doesn't let you go. And Sodom and Gomorrah didn't let Lot go without stealing everything that he had. And then he leaves finally. He gets out because God literally drags him out by angels, right? And that's a pretty serious situation. And he goes and he has physical sexual relationships with his daughters. You know something? Sodom and Gomorrah never let go of Lot. And Elimelech never gets let go of here either. He dies. He dies. He says, 
He says, he and his, so he goes on, he says, he went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi, the name of their two sons was Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judea, in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and, somebody have that next word there for me? Okay, not yet. What does it say? They remained there. They went to Moab to sojourn there, right? They went to Moab for a break. They went to Moab for a vacation, but Moab didn't let go of them. May I submit to you folks that Moab never lets go. He holds us. It is a picture, again, Sodom and Gomorrah, Moabites were were noted and known for their immorality. This was was the sin city of of Ruth and, and Genesis. They went to sojourn there, but it didn't let them go, did it? It drew them in, the comforts that were there. The Bible goes on to say, they went into the... um, They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, and what's the next word now? Died. He died there. Many many theologians, and I would agree with them, that he died because it was judgment from God. He was being judged by God. He took his family where he wasn't supposed to take his family. And remember this. This is so important to remember that in the midst of God's divine design, judgment is present. Judgment is not lost. And we, we see this beautiful picture of redemption, but we also see God's justice in it. God's justice is very, very present in it. So he goes on. He, and not only... So, so Elimelech dies... The husband of Naomi dies, and she's left with her two sons, and these took Moabite wives, okay? Underline that. Who'd they marry? Were they they supposed to be marrying women from other people groups? That That was one of the two main commands that God gave them not to do, right? So they go into a place where Moabites live. They don't, they don't, pass through, but they dwell there, and the natural process of that is that they're going to marry those women. He goes on to say, and they went into the country of Moab, let's see here, um, these took Moabite wives, the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth, they lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion, what's the next word? Died. We see God's justice again. God's justice is not lacking in his providence. It's present. The Bible goes on to say, so that the women, was, so that the women or the woman, Naomi was being spoken of, was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the, that the Lord had visited the people and given them food. This is the first sign in the book of Ruth of hope. This is the first sign of hope. Now, Ruth's, Naomi's response is not hopeful, but this is the first sign of hope. This is Jehovah. 
And specifically, Jehovah is used here to describe the fact this is the deliverer. This is the one who's going to bring deliverance. Jehovah is going to deliver. He goes on in verse number 7. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So all three of the ladies, their husbands are all dead. All three of the ladies are on their journey back to, to Bethlehem of Judah because they have discovered that there is hope. And there is hope in, their, in, in Naomi's homeland. Verse 8. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go return each one of you to her mother's house. Okay, so he's basically telling her to stay where they're at, to stay in the Moabite place. May the Lord deal with you kindly, as the Lord has dealt with the dead, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you have, that you find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Okay, you notice that what is she interested in right now? What's she interested in? Same thing that took them to Moab is the same thing that's taking them back to Bethlehem. It's fleshly. Rest. Not just rest, but she notices that there's food there now. It's fleshly. So, so, so Naomi's not walking with the Lord right here. She just sees that there's a potential for her to be restful and for her to be taken care of again. The Bible says, Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept, and they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say that I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are born? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the Lord, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then she lifted up, then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her, or clung to her. And I want to stop there um, because the next two portions are, I want to go a little bit further here. And the Bible says, and she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her, what's the next word there? And to her gods. Okay, just note, this is Naomi encouraging Ruth to stay there, and she's using Orpah as an example of somebody who has stayed there and gone back to her gods. Not a good thing. Ruth, Naomi is not in tune with the Lord. Matter of fact, she sees, she sees this as being God's bitterness against, bitter hand against her. And then it's going to go on and describe this further. Um, I want to just give you a few thoughts from this portion of Scripture to help you. And you, you note at the end, um, and I, I, thought this was, I thought there was value in this. We see, we see human things in these stories, these narratives that we can learn from and grow from that are not necessarily the, the main thrust, if you will. The main thrust is redemption through Christ. But we also see in this story that when we, when we have a, a wrong perspective of the Lord and we get bitter, it, it, it really, really hurts us and it really, really hinders our advice to people, doesn't it? It really makes our advice to people 
pretty deplorable. When we get bitter, we get that, that anger inside of us that maybe something that somebody did to us or something that somebody said about us or something that happened to us many years ago. We get this bitterness inside of us and we start to live. That bitterness doesn't just impact us, it impacts all of those around us. It's not a healthy thing. Naomi entered into that bitterness. She felt like God was her enemy. God was in opposition to her. She became bitter, not just with God, but she became bitter with life. She tells her own daughters-in-law to go back to their gods. Let Let me give you a few thoughts about God's redemption. God redeems three things in this text. God redeems bad people. You can go back to, um, again, uh, Tamar, go back to the, the women that we see in the line of Christ are representatives of, of, evil, of evil, okay? When you, see, when you read through the book of Ruth, you will see Ruth refer to herself and be referred to innumerable amounts of times as a Moabite, as a Moabite. All the time, a Moabite, a Moabite, a Moabite, a Moabite. Why? Because the, the emphasis is on this is not somebody that we would look to to see God using. This is, this is the person that we would write off and say that there's no hope for that person. There is nobody with whom there is no hope for. Christ is, Christ is capable of doing whatever he chooses to do in redeeming mankind for himself. He's not limited. His arm is not shortened that he cannot save. There's nobody who is too far off. The apostle Paul was a murderer of Christians, and the Lord used him as one of the greatest authors of the New Testament. You may look at somebody and say they're too far gone, but they're not too far gone because God is capable, Christ is capable of saving the most, the furthest away from him. This is why he uses the prostitutes in the Old Testament to to reflect on the fact that he saves those who are far from him. I'm glad to know that. Matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 1 verses 26 down through 31 says that God chooses the weak things of the world. God chooses the poor things, the insignificant things of this world so that he might show himself powerful. Do you know why it's so unique that God would use, uh, in this situation, use these types of women to, to bring forth redemption? Is because it makes a, a strong reflection on how amazing his redemptive work is. It's a strong display of grace. If you had somebody that they talked about and was like, ah, she was, she was this great person and man, she had this great personality and she followed the Lord and everything that she did and everything about her was great, it would just minimize him. But what God does is he takes people who are insignificant. We should never be afraid of being insignificant because that's who God uses. God redeems bad people. God redeems bad decisions in this case, going to, going to Moab. In this case, marrying Moabite, Moabite women. These were not in tune with God's, with, with God's um, character, with his commands. But yet God was going to bring something extraordinary through it. And God redeems bad attitudes. God uses Naomi, this extraordinary um, figure in the book of Ruth. Matter of fact, many would say that the book of Ruth should be called Naomi, the book of Naomi, because it's so much about Naomi. God redeems bad attitudes as well. 
We see in this passage of Scripture, God redeems them from famine. God redeems them from not having a purpose. God redeems them from loneliness. He redeems them from fear. He redeems them from despair. He redeems them from depression. And ultimately, all of these things are rooted in sin. God redeems us from our sins. That is the ultimate expression of Christ's redemptive work, is that Christ redeems us from our sins. That is his work, redeeming us from our sins. There is nothing that Christ can't redeem you from, and it's all rooted in his redemption from your sins. And ultimately, in the end, all of those things are going to go away. Number two, first of all, God redeems us from bad people, bad decisions, bad attitudes. Number two, God redeems us for his purposes. God redeems us for his purposes. You do not, you will not find in the book of Ruth a description to her being worthy of being redeemed. Redemption is something that the Redeemer chooses to do. As a matter of fact, the emphasis in the book of Ruth is how insignificant Ruth was. She's just walking through life. God redeems for his purposes, and God redeems for his glory. It all points to him. It's about his character. It's about him displaying how amazing he is. If God would have left this family alone, this family would have been just like all of the other families in the book of Judges. They would have done what was right in their own eyes. The only time that there was any hope for the people in the Hebrew culture during this time was when God would send a judge, not to redeem them, but to bring uh, uh, a sense of restoration for a season, ultimately pointing them to the ultimate redeemer, which was Christ. And why does he do this? Is because God has a plan of redeeming a people for himself, and it's always for his purposes because he is a redemptive God, and it's always for his glory because his redemption is display, the greatest display of his glory. I would encourage you to read, um, to read Ephesians 1 in relation to that. Number three, and lastly, God changes what he redeems. God changes what he redeems. It's so important to understand that in this story, they didn't, when God redeemed them from famine, they didn't stay in famine. When God redeemed her from bitterness, she didn't stay in bitterness. When God redeemed them from loneliness, they didn't stay lonely. The essence of their deliverance was that, the essence of their redemption was that they were no longer in it anymore. When God, when God redeems us, folks, when God redeems a situation, a circumstance, when God redeems a people, when God redeems an attitude, whatever it might be, he doesn't leave us in it. He pulls us out of it so that the bitter person is no longer bitter anymore. The lonely person is no longer lonely anymore. The hopeless person is no longer hopeless anymore. And why are these things true? If Christ is our redemption, think about this. The lonely person is not lonely because they're not because they're not alone, right? That makes sense. The lonely person isn't lonely because they're not alone anymore. The bitter person isn't bitter because their problems have been solved in Christ. The hopeless person isn't hopeless because they have, have, because they have hope in Christ. All of these things are solved and we are changed because the Redeemer has taken us and he has altered us. He's made us into a new creation. 
So my encouragement to us this morning as we look at this, the introduction, and we see all of this humanity. We do. We see a lot of humanity in this first chapter. We don't really get to see even the slightest hint of the Redeemer until latter parts of the chapter. We see a lot of man. But God is going to take those situations and those and those people, and he's going to use them for his glory and for his purposes. Next week, I encourage you to come back next week because we're going to see we're going to see the heart of somebody who gets really used by God. And um, Ruth is a great example of somebody who um, the Bible says that she clung to Naomi, but the reality of it is that she clung to Jesus, and that's what's going to make us most usable in God's kingdom. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you are a redeeming Lord, that you take what we, you take what we have broken, you take what we have um, adopted, you take all of the things that we are involved in, Lord, and you can redeem them, Lord, as we give them to you and surrender as in our walk, we find your purposes coming to fulfillment. We find your eternal plan coming about, and um, we're thankful for that. We're hopeful in it. And Lord, as we find hope and peace and rest and fulfillment in these things, um, help us to give them even more so to you. Help us to give all that we are to you. We pray that you would bless this morning and um, just continue to grow us into the people you want us to be. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.